the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. The great and the good of the shipping industry steamed towards US shores this week, lured in by a pretty pivotal set of energy transition events. New York played host to the UN Climate Week events, the UN General Assembly, and, of course, the Global Maritime Forum, while the Clean Energy Forum in Pittsburgh ensured that diplomats and delegates clocked up a few extra air miles in the race to cut emissions, ironically enough. These meetings are more than hot air, I promise you. They act as a progress report on the industry's energy transition. So I've been doing the rounds with noiseless microphone in hand, of course, talking to dozens of industry leaders about where we are in that all-encompassing energy transition. And I've got a lot to tell you about, more than I can squeeze into a single podcast. So over the coming weeks, I'm going to be bringing you a series of special audio reports featuring some of the industry's most senior leaders offering insights into shipping's zero-carbon revolution. I promise you it's going to be compelling listening. Because the inconvenient truth, I'm afraid to say, is that the shipping industry is not on a trajectory to hit net zero by 2050. Not even close. The only way I think it's going to find the pace and the scale that is required to correct this dangerous path is to stop looking at this as a shipping problem. Stop trying to tackle the issue in silos as a singular issue and start engaging the rest of the energy value chain. Now, for this week's edition, I'm going to bring you a short taster of some of the conversations I've been having, but there is more to come. I'm going to start with Jan Dieleman, who uh, is a familiar voice to many of you. He heads up Cargill's Ocean Transportation Group. He's also the chair of the Global Maritime Forum, which was on this week in New York. We talked about the pace of change, particularly in the context of the same meeting that happened a year ago, where the enthusiasm was pretty palpable. Ministerial pledges were being tossed around like confetti at a wedding, and COP26 was going to translate all of that into an accelerated path for clean energy. Well, it didn't quite work out like that. And while there has undoubtedly been progress since then, the reality of the long and arduous tasks ahead of us are starting to hit home, just as a global recession is about to kick in, fueled by a war and an energy and food crisis. No, I, I think we are in a difficult phase, right? Is uh, what happened in, in the Ukraine is something that I think we couldn't underestimate. Mm. It's, um, it's raised a lot of questions, energy prices up, and I think uh, you see it as well, inflation all over the place, you demand destruction that we, we see. So, yeah, I think supply chains normalizing. So the, the bonanza that we were a little bit in last year, I think, is, is, is calmed down a bit. And, okay, there's a couple of subsectors that are still doing well. But yeah, there is a little bit more of a, um, I think, a less clear outlook, mm. which has is, is created more kind of question marks. I do think that the industry, even within that kind of context, is actually still progressing. Um, and yes, we haven't seen an awful lot of new announcement of, uh, of, of, of new fuels and all these kind of things. But the reality is, is that we actually now, if you have a conversation with a yard in China or Japan, you actually have a design which is actually ready mm. to be built. And we were not at that phase last year. So I think we have made progress there. I think where the industry is starting to pivot as well is that in order to do these transitions, you there's a couple of components that you need to have, right? And one of them is the, um, is the technical aspect, the engines and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the other part is, is, is the fuel supply. 
and then there's this whole question on who's going to pay for what and do we need levies and etc etc so I on those three items I think we're getting to the point where technically I think we're getting very comfortable that we can actually do this these engines are available and yes there is some safety issues on some of the fuels which I think we will work ourselves through um, so I think that one is kind of the, the industry is getting comfortable that there's probably three, four choices. Um, this is going to work. It's probably going to work better for certain sizes, certain solutions, etc. So that one, I think, I feel very comfortable about. The other thing that I think is starting to gain traction again, which I'm actually quite positive about, is this whole notion on putting a price on carbon, mm. which is clearly back on the agenda. Um, and it seems also that the IMO is actually starting to make some 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 steps towards that. So. The question is, okay, how meaningful is that going to be? What's the timeline around that? But I think that thing is also in motion, and, and, and I'm probably more confident that this is actually going to come on a global scale now than if you would have asked me 12 or 24 months ago. The one thing that I think everybody is starting to get a little bit nervous about is the whole fuel supply. Mm. Because I think there's this notion that we have all kind of other industries decarbonizing at the same kind of pace or sometimes a little bit ahead of us and we're all fighting for the same solutions which most of them are hydrogen based in the end of the day yeah. so I think that's where I think shipping is sitting a little bit which I think is a fair discussion to have where do we actually sit because today we're burning the bottom of the barrel and you start having to compete with other industry for premium fuel so that is a, a, a big step change that needs to happen in the industry so I think that's where the nervousness today is mainly around and how this is all going to pencil out. And that is a problem if you are only having that conversation as the shipping industry in its isolated form. But the conversation we're having here at Global Maritime Forum is with the likes of you, Cargill, with Trafigura, with politicians, with most major aspects of the value chain represented in this room. Those groups together they can get a seat at the table and have a proactive conversation about offtake agreements, about government-level subsidies for fuels. The shipping industry alone can't do that. Where are we in that conversation? Because it feels like everybody in this room agrees, but I don't see that translating into reality outside of this room. I, I think you nailed it on the head there. I think we're coming from a point where not only shipping, but every industry was looking inside and saying what to do, and everybody feels the pressure from society to do something. So I think it's all with good intentions. I think what I see now in, in, in this forum also this week is we're actually starting to see that these discussions start taking place. Mm. Um, we actually see governments coming in and saying, okay, tell us more. Well, how can we help? Mm. That's a conversation we haven't had for a long time. So I think that's a big positive. Um, take the Poseidon principles, right? Um, that was started in maritime. And now we have a Poseidon principles for the steel industry. So a lot of the things are now starting to go a little bit more across, which I think is, is, is very much needed. Mm. Um, there's a lot of learnings as well from, from industries, from the one to the other. So are we where we should be? Probably not. Uh, are we making progress? Yes. The problem is if you want to have everyone on the table, mm. it's also extremely difficult to actually get things done. Now, Jan isn't the only voice raising the alarm about fuel supply. It was actually a pretty consistent theme of the week. Timing, of course, is key in these discussions, and Trafigura's global head of fuel decarbonisation, Rasmus Bach-Nielsen, believes that the energy crisis triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine has actually accelerated the energy transition by up to 10 years. 
Now, that's actually a pretty positive long-term side effect in climate policy. But the near-term concern is that the shipping industry is still looking at fuel as if it is decarbonizing in isolation, and it's not. The threat is that um, various other industries get access to the hydrogen. Mm -hmm. They manage to mature the infrastructure so it can burn this uh, clean fuel. Mm. This clean fuel may subsequently not be available for the shipping industry. And why is that? When, If the shipping industry have not come out fast enough, and this is where IMO come into the picture, mm. Well, chances are that with the other industries maturing, they will be taking up all the hydrogen. Uh, and what does that then mean for shipping? Well, in our world, there are two zero-emission fuels of the future, and those are green methanol and blue ammonia, or green ammonia, sorry, and potentially a blue element of each of them, subject to carbon sequestering in the processes. Okay. Um, but the challenge we will have as an industry is that all industries will absorb this hydrogen. The positive, and it is a true positive, because there's so much offshore wind capacity that will be unlocked. Mm. And the politicians, I think, will go uh, rather a step further than a step shorter. Which meaning that hopefully there will be so much green electricity available that actually we will have more green electricity available also to convert the hydrogen into shipping, mm. green shipping fuels. A combined synergy uh, is that technology cost of electrolyzer capacity, etc., is likely to come off potentially significantly. Mm. Maybe not in the first couple of years because we will have a capacity constraint, mm. but now we're talking 26, 27, maybe 28. And I think the big wave of uh, green shipping fuels will only arrive 27, 28 onwards. Right. And looking at where we are today, uh, which is uh, in a position where we don't have enough zero-emission shipping fuels coming. But that's still a fairly narrow window. And I think one of the misconceptions about this conversation is that shipping has such little agency in the pace and trajectory of these discussions that it's almost like there is a mentality within shipping that we wait until something is available, uh, but in the meantime we, we talk about efficiency and operation. But the point that you've just raised is that actually we need to be in the conversations now so that we are not overtaken. You know, the shipping industry has the opportunity to be quite revolutionary, to be leading the conversation, because this energy production is going to be reliant on demand, and that long-term demand signal from industries like shipping is one area that could lead the way. It definitely has a, has a chance to lead the way, but, but for every six months that passes by, and why do you use that? Because that's how long time between IMEPC meetings. Mm. For every six months that passes by, uh, other industries are, are rapidly catching up mm. and, and also understanding that hydrogen is likely to become available in Europe by 26 and 27. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, 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 and it sort of moves us into IMO. And, and going back to what you said earlier on in the conversation here, um, about 12 months ago where people were very dynamic and sort of positive and, mm. and looking at, well, not much have happened. I actually disagree because I think a lot has happened. Okay. Uh, and I just don't think it, it has really surfaced in full mm. yet. And then where hasn't it surfaced in full? That's in the IMO where 
you have probably 40 to 50 developing countries which we can define as swing countries mm. in terms of just being about ready to go and, and being promotive of a levy or market-based measures within the IMO. And I don't think it takes a big push to get them over the line. And, and as you get this domino effect of getting these countries over the line, I think when we speak in the new year, I think we will have a different conversation. And that is, okay, how positive suddenly the whole thing is looking. Uh, we see the, the US climate envoy, envoy of the president's office, which is very ambitious. We've seen them today. Mm -hmm. We see them in the room. Uh, they only have one vote in the IMO, but they do have a lot to say. Yeah. And they can push countries. And, and I must say the US has taken huge leadership. Uh, which brings me confidence that actually more things are happening than hits the surface. Even if you haven't attended one of these meetings, it should come as no surprise to learn that the self-selecting blue-chip end of the industry are a relentlessly optimistic bunch. But they also acknowledge that they don't represent the whole industry, and the jury is out as to whether this coalition of the willing have got enough gravitational pull between them to take the rest of the fragmented majority of the shipping industry with them on their accelerated pathway to zero-carbon nirvana. Shell's Carrie Troth accepts that there's an issue here, but she has a pretty unshakable faith in the power of small steps that need to be taken across the entire ecosystem. When I look at it, we are a regulation-driven industry. There are those, as you say, at the top end who will take those decisions, they'll make investments, even if the payback is long and the, the decarbonization is uncertain. The rest of the industry needs the regulation, and the regulator needs certainty that there's a path that can be implemented before making the regulation. That's my observation. I, I don't sit in the inner sanctum of those conversations, but that's what I'm seeing, that it's very difficult for a regulator to say by this date, this target, by this date, to make a glide path to get to zero by 2050. Um, and it's the, it's the cumulative nature of these little, little projects, and some of them are by no means little, but the individual investments that then give the regulator confidence that there is a pathway. And so for me, that's, that's the bit of positive news that comes out of the top-level, uh, I think you said kite-flying, but the, the top-level announcements, the aspirational announcements. As trials happen, we can demonstrate there's a viable pathway. The interesting thing for me in weeks like this, we're, we're here in the midst of the UN General Assembly. It's around Climate Week in New York. The Global Maritime Forum more than ever now has members and uh, engagement from people and institutions that are well outside of the scope of shipping. And that really has always been the key message within these discussions that in many respects this isn't a shipping problem. This is a, a supply chain, value chain, global trade problem that needs to be resolved in conjunction with global finance, with energy transition, with government and regulation. You sit at the center of a lot of those pieces being Shell. You are not just a ship charterer, operator, you are an energy supplier, you are leading the conversation around the demand for zero carbon fuels and doing many things besides. To some extent you are leading this conversation. How do you see it from 
that perspective, wearing your many hats, representing a company who wears many hats in this conversation, is the shipping industry doing enough? Because they, they have very little agency in this, realistically. Yeah, when I let me take that in two pieces. When I when I look at the shipping industry, when I look at the challenge of decarbonizing the industry, you summed it up quite neatly. It takes the entire ecosystem from the financiers to the designers to the equipment manufacturers to the owners, operators, charters, cargo owners, and the end customer. So it really takes the entire value chain. Um, and when you think, including the regulators, and when you think about that, um, one of the things Shell has been actively working on is listening and trying to hear and understand each of the parts of the value chain and what their concerns are individually so then we can knit that together into a broader story. Um, the thing that we haven't been talking about, and we've been talking about this, we've been moving in that direction in North America, sitting here in New York, the Blue Sky Maritime Coalition is indeed looking just at American-Canadian cabotage shipping because the shipping solution is so different than the global shipping solution. So therefore, it requires a different set of incentives, a different set of players, a different set of regulators to change the shipping industry in North America. But even with that, we've been looking at the shipping industry. And we're coming to the realization that it's not just shipping. It's shipping as a hard-to-abate sector with aviation as a hard-to-abate sector, with heavy transport as a hard-to-abate sector, with rail, with um, steel, with concrete, with our industrials. And the reality is, until we start having that whole conversation and we're bringing the voices of the multiple sectors together, shipping can try. The IMO can regulate. The, the flag state members can set their own national regulations. But shipping won't in itself create a new fuel. Shipping in and of itself won't create the future. So we need to we need to find ways to build coalitions with those other industries. And I think that's one piece, Richard, that's missing. Alex Severus is one of those owners who has put his money where his mouth is. CMB Tech, the Severus family's clean shipping operation, has almost single-handedly led the hydrogen-powered charge in European shipping research. So when I caught up with him, we talked about why the industry is struggling to translate ambition into action, and of course, why he's so frustrated that the rest of the industry hasn't followed him, at least not yet. Yeah, I think this is on, on, on the one hand, you know, either we are the only people that are right, or we're the only ones that are wrong. And, and you know, it's, it's, I'm sorry to say it, because uh, I would have loved to have more ship owners uh, believing in uh, what we do. I'm still very much convinced that uh, these two solutions, hydrogen and ammonia, have a lot of potential. Mm. And of course, there are other solutions out there as well. But the most promising ones in, in which we would invest would be these two. Um, <coughs> but ship owners are very impatient people sometimes. It's strange. I mean, we're, we're a, a thousand-year-old industry and we work in cycles of 25, 30 years because the lifetime of a ship is so long. But then we get bored quickly. <laughs> if the solution is not there immediately. Um, and, and this is what I'm picking up as well today uh, at the Global Maritime Forum, is that people say, well, you know, last year we were all very happy, enthusiastic, and where are the solutions? Where are the solutions? It has to, be, it has to go quicker. And then we have the tendency, of course, to go for the things we know, mm. which is LNG, and then suddenly there's methanol because it's cheap. 
which I personally uh, think uh, is, is probably not the best uh, for the industry. But as always, you know, every individual ship owner uh, acts as own in, in its own interest. So a real question, Richard, actually, I can ask you, what does it take to change? What does it take to, to, to shake up the tree? And um, will it be regulation coming from Europe? Um, will it come from the consumers? Something I thought would be there, but I mean, today with the inflation environment, etc., are consumers be going to be willing to pay for green products? I think that's an argument that is gone, probably temporarily. Um, so what do we need to, to shake things up so that you know, we start making things much more concrete than we're doing today? City's Michael Parker is a familiar voice to regular listeners of this podcast, but he was in New York this week wearing his Poseidon Principles hat and his tie that features ostriches burying their heads in the sand. It was a subtle dig at some of the people in the audience around some of the events this week. But he was announcing tightened trajectories uh, aligned with the Paris 1.5 degrees target of net zero by 2050, rather than the IMO's current 50% targets. He's been a pretty consistent voice in this debate from the start, and we're going to go into some more depth over the coming weeks as to what he has been talking about. But I spoke to him about the tightening requirements for lending and why, unless there's a pretty significant shift in some business models, that some companies are going to eventually find themselves out in the cold. I asked him, at what point does this start to bite? Well, I think it's starting already, frankly. I mean, I don't think you haven't seen any company go out of business yet for this reason, but but it is an inevitability for the simple reason that and especially when we have the definition of scope three emissions, is this is not being driven by the banks. This is being driven by the cargo interests. And it's the cargo interests who pay for the freights, which the ship owners use to repay their banks and other things. So it's a, it, it, it's, it's, it's the credit worthiness of companies will disappear simply because cargo won't go on their ships or the rate at which cargo goes on their ships is, is, is not going to be attractive. So... I see it as a virtuous circle, of, uh, which is what the banks, the insurers and cargo interests are doing, which is wanting to help ship owners uh, make the transition. I do think when we talk about net zero and 1.5, we need to remember that this is about lowering emissions as fast as possible using all the available technologies. Uh, at our disposal and banks being willing to help finance retrofitting that achieves that and we've seen support from that from major cargo owners to to help help shipping companies do that but there's inevitability around the future investment being significantly more expensive probably and that that means that you know capital and financial strength are going to be a, a an issue um I think an issue in terms of the, the ability to order new technologies and new vessels. Um, and I suppose in the end also for where cargo interests are willing to commit long term to, because the other thing that has to happen in this the, during this process, is, I think, is a, uh, and this is where green corridors come in, is that actually there are long term employment for ships, guaranteed cash flow in effect, to make this all happen. It can't be done speculatively. And banks are not going to finance things speculatively. They'll take risks and they'll want to uh, be proactive around sponsoring and lending against new technology because that is part of banks' own net zero commitments to, to provide capital for the right things. 
um, but you've always been very protective of the squeezed middle or whatever you call it, and I'm afraid the squeezed middle will get further squeezed on this issue unless they... We've, we, we heard at the Capital Link thing that you know, on the topic of consolidation, more consolidation is going to happen for lots of different reasons, mm. and I think this is this is going to be a significant reason, mm. uh, simply to share in the difficult decisions around new technology and to have the financial strength in order to make the investments. And all of those things have to happen if not simultaneously, then certainly in close succession. You have to have that shift from the charters. You have to have the availability of the technology soon enough to get 5% zero emissions vessels on the water by 2030. We are in 2022, and while there are positive noises coming out of the engine manufacturers about test trials by the end of this year on methanol, some on ammonia coming through, we're not in a position yet that we're actually seeing any tangible technology. The transition that you describe requires no new investment in the current technology post-2030. How optimistic are you that we are going to meet those time frames that you've described? Are you more or less optimistic than when we spoke about this last year? I think I'm more optimistic because I think the collaboration aspects um, are, are clear. I think the, the, the concept that a solution, a solution to this was slow steaming has disappeared out of the window. I mean, slow steaming is something that can contribute, obviously, to the lowering emissions, but ultimately, slow steaming, where you're still emitting carbon and greenhouse gases, is not going to be acceptable by regulation or by choice of, of cargo and stuff. So, I do think, though, we, we, we use dates as mileposts in order to scale and, and judge the success or otherwise of the ambition. I do suspect we'll both be pleasantly surprised and disappointed at different points around the, the pace of it. Um, but I, but I, I, I think that if we're going to get to net zero by 2050 uh, and to be confident of doing that, then the pace of that change will increase as is necessary, even if it may be slower to start with. But I'm actually quite optimistic that between now and 2030, we'll begin to see a significant uptake in the new technologies and the appearance on the water of, of, of vessels that, you know, we may not be getting to absolute zero emissions because of the upstream issues, but, but as near as near as zero as one can get with the current technology and that i'm afraid is where we're gonna to have to leave it for this week i have to hop on a plane back to london where i will start digesting the rest of the conversations that i've been having so listen out for more to come from each of my guests and many many more besides over the coming weeks for now though thank you for listening i'll be back next friday 